Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's driving Fed policy? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jim Bianco, founder of Bianco Research. Hi, Jim. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me back. Love having you on a Fed day. And boy, there's just sort of lot to unpack in this one. So we had the decision. Fed held rates steady for the first time. I think it is 15 months. But they tr- certainly tried to sound as hawkish as possible. At first, we saw stocks sell off. The two-year yield shot higher. But then things sort of turned around after that as we made our way through the press conference. So, you know, just just broadly, what's your reaction to what you heard and what you saw in the market? You know, uh the meeting itself not moving, the reaction is is that's pretty much what was expected. There was an outlier chance they might do something like raise rates, but that was a very low probability, but higher than normal. Um, the the I'd say that the, what they announced was super hawkish uh, skip because what they did with the dot chart for 2023 is they raised it. And so they're saying that there's going to be two more rate hikes this calendar year, and there's only four meetings left. So that's 50 basis points spread over four meetings. All but two of the members of the Fed said that they would raise rates at least one more time. And the two that didn't said that they're just going to hold steady. Um, in fact, one member thinks they're going to raise weights four more times, which would be 25 at every meeting um, here on out. And the probabilities for the July meeting are better than 50%. They're at 60. So this is looking like the communication that the Fed wanted us to believe was this was a real skip. And that July's meeting, you have to pencil in right now a hike for July. Now, maybe we pencil it out in the next couple of weeks, depending on the data or the Fed talk. But right now, you got to say that they're not done. They're going to keep going with interest rates hikes as, as we move forward. Yeah, that was certainly the impression, especially in that initial statement. But, you know, that as they were talking through the press conference, um, Powell was asked specifically about July, right? And his answer was a little bit murky. And he said, well, it's a live meeting. Um, and that's really the point where you saw the market start to turn around a little bit, um, thinking, okay, yeah. well, if there are two more, but they're not willing to say it's July, how hawkish are they really? And I, Oliver just put in the chat, do you think actions speak louder than words for the Fed? That that little yeah. bit in the press conference seemed to give seemed to introduce some doubt in their in their conviction. Yeah, I think so. And I think you know my take on it is what came out in a press conference. It, I think this was a political move. I know what I mean by a political move is I think Paul cut a deal with the rest of the FOMC. I think he had a, a, a couple of members on the FOMC probably led by Austin Goolsby uh, from the Chicago Fed, who's brand new at the Fed right now, maybe Mary Daly in the St. Louis Fed, um, that were talking about dissenting if they were going to raise rates at this meeting. And so I think the deal was, we're all going to agree that we're going to pause or skip this meeting for now, but that the rate hike cycle is not over. And that wishy-washy came through in the press conference 
And I think the market interpreted that as they're not committed to continuing to raise rates. Uh, I'll push back on that and say, no, I think they are committed to Mm -hmm. raising rates. I think what one of the things that came out sort of indirectly in the press conferences, you know, oh, you guys have raised rates 500 basis points, and that's a lot. Yeah, and there's very little evidence that that has hurt anything. Stock market's back at a 14-month high. Uh, You know, the economy, I like to joke that the problem with the economy is there is no problem with the economy. We're still churning out 300,000 jobs a month. This economy can handle 5% if rates, can handle probably 6% rates. And I think that that's really maybe even higher. And that's really what we probably got in store for ourselves is that the, uh, so I think that the pause or the skip, whatever we're gonna call it uh, today, was really a political move. He just didn't wanna raise rates with a bunch of dissents and then have to go through that agreement because that's the way the Fed, I, I disagree with it, but that's the way the Fed works, that they like to make sure that everything is a unanimous decision or as close to as a unanimous decision as possible. Yeah, certainly certainly lately, Powell's been trying to do that. Um, and he's been very successful at it for the most part. So this is this is where I think it gets really interesting. And there's a lot of disagreement. And there's a lot of disagreement, by the way, within the Fed, it looks like, which, which I want to dive into a, into a minute. So do you think, if that's the conversation, and there are a couple that wanted to dissent, do you think that's right? Does it look like the economy is way more resilient than anyone thinks or or forecasts a short time ago? It's sort of that that line that Larry Summers has been talking about and others. Is that the camp that you fall in, Jim? Yeah, I think that there's two there's two answers to this question. And the first answer is as of June 14th, the day we were recording, the economy has been very resilient. It has beaten on the payroll report 14 consecutive months, which tells you when everybody's always wrong in the same direction every month, that they're missing something, that there's underlying strength in the labor market, that they're not quite getting their head around, which is why we've got these consistent misses, and that the economy is showing very few signs of the recession that everybody thought we would have by mid-year back in January. Remember back in January, the consensus was by the middle of the year, we'll see definite signs of recession. Well, we're at the middle of the year and there are no signs of recession um, right now. So of course the recession forecast has been pushed off to Q4, Q1, and they'll just keep perpetually pushing it off. So yes, the economy has been very strong. Will it stay that way as we move forward? This gets back to what I said before, We've raised rates 500 basis points. I think a lot of people are in the camp that that's going to hurt. And Jay Powell kind of intimated that in a conference too. We've done a lot of work. We've got to wait and see what what kind of effect it has. Monetary policy works on long and variable lags. And so that's really where they're really, the, the fault line is with debate. The only problem I have with it is we should have already seen some signs of real slowing in the economy. Because you could have argued they did 300 basis points of rate hikes as of eight months ago. And how come we're not seeing those effects on the economy just yet? So this is really where the debate is gonna come in. As we go through the rest of the summer, if we don't see signs that the economy is really slowing down, we're gonna start talking about six or 7% on the funds rate. And that gets me to the second point. It also matters as to what is important. Is it the inflation rate or is it the real economy? Now, a year ago, 
we were having a debate because we had the first and second quarters of the of the uh, year negative GDP. Was that a recession? And a lot of people, I was in the camp that it was, and I still kind of think it was from a technical perspective, but I understand the argument that it wasn't because we never had any negative payroll or anything else along those lines. Didn't slow the Fed down. They were hiking 75 basis points a clip during that period. What's that tell me? They only care about, they only care about inflation. So maybe the economy goes into recession or maybe it doesn't. But if the inflation rate does not start to move towards 2%. And boy, did Jay make that clear. I'm sorry for going in recession. Just deal with it. We're hiking rates. And that's kind of the that was the mentality last year. And that could return as a mentality as, as we move forward. So the real question might be, the more important question might be, uh, what what's the next move for inflation? Exactly. And you answered the question we started the show with, which is what's driving the Fed? And they made it pretty clear that it is, inflation that is the is the main focus right now. So this is this is very interesting because if anyone's surfing around, I know Christopher, you caught um, Jeffrey Gunlack from Double Line was on uh, talking after the Fed meeting and very much taking the opposite side of the argument saying, listen, the economy's weak. What are they talking about? And rattled off M2 deeply negative. Leading indicators are weak. ISM new orders are in recessionary territory. The yield curve is negative. And he thinks that the Fed is doing the same thing they did at the start of this with inflation. And they are looking at lagging backward indicators. They're looking in the rearview mirror and they're not focused on sort of more real time, high frequency data. And they're going to go too far. Is you know, that typically the level always, that's facing the Fed, or are we just not seeing more signs of recession that sort of Gunlack's indicating? Well, Jeff's right on everything he said about the real economy. And I mean, I'm not that far away from his thinking. I'm saying that up until June 14th, it's been okay. But yes, there are some indicators that it may slow down, but it also comes down to priority. So, so let's just assume he's completely correct. If the inflation rate does not moderate to 2%, so what? They're going to hike rates. But if the inflation rate does moderate to 2%, then they aren't going to hike rates. And, uh, and I, I think what gets lost is Jay Powell says the same words at every press conference for the last year. And it's all the boilerplate at the beginning that we ignore, and maybe we shouldn't. They're committed to getting inflation to the 2%. If we don't get inflation down, it is going to, the economy won't work for everybody. We understand the hardships that inflation puts on everybody. Let me translate this, that half the country lives paycheck to paycheck. Half the country has no savings. If the inflation rate stays above wage growth, they lose. They buy less things every year at the store because the, their paycheck cannot keep up with, with uh, rising prices. Jay, Jay Powell understands that. And he's saying, I've got to get the inflation rate down below wage growth. And all you rich people, and let me define rich people, you're watching me on Real Vision because you got some kind of savings or interested in financial markets, take one for the team. That's That was the argument last year. That argument may return as we move forward if the inflation rate doesn't come down. And so that's really, I agree with Jeff, it's just more about the priority. Is the priority the Fed inflation or is it real growth? And I think it's more about inflation. 
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And I think he he said as much at one point when he was talking about underlying economic growth. And he was sort of saying, because somebody asked him how you're upgrading your growth prospects. And yet we're talking about higher rates. He is, and uh, or, you know, talking about some of the other things that seemed inconsistent. And he said, stronger economic growth doesn't matter if you're seeing that eaten away by inflation. So that's <laughs> why the concern about inflation. So you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, those weren't in his exact words, but it was it was something to that effect that 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 inflation is uh, the the concern, the worry that is going to hurt people, especially at the lower end of the income. Let's dig into why we keep seeing this persistent inflation, though. And does does this have something to do with also this divide between people who are better off and those who are kind of living more paycheck to paycheck, or let's call it like most of the country. Um, right. Because it's, it seems like if you're, if you're Jeff and you're looking at the traditional ISM new orders, all of these indicators, which would track or forecast where inflation's going, we haven't really seen that happen. It seems like inflation is what, is it the services area that's keeping it elevated? Where's the stickiness? Is it wages? Yeah. Is it the labor market? So there's a couple of things about the inflation rate. And I've argued this even on this platform here that, you know, the fancy word is we're in a post-pandemic economy. We tend to discount what an epic event it was to completely shut down the global economy and then restart it and then pump in massive amounts of stimulus to try and keep everything afloat. It is going to define that event in 2020 is going to define the economy for the next generation. And it is. And one of the things I think it's done is it's changed a lot of things about the way the economy works. The biggest one is, and this is my hobby horse I talk about all the time, work from home. I do not think you can discount how epic that is on changing the narrative of the economy. And I'm careful here. I'm using the word change. I'm not using the word worse. It's different. It's an apple. It's not an orange. That doesn't mean that one's worse than the other. And it really shows up in two places. One I've already mentioned, and that is, you know, most of the labor forecasts on Wall Street are always wrong in the same direction, that there is a different type of labor market that we've ever, than we've seen probably in our lifetime, if not at least our career. And, and we still have to get our head around that. And it also showed up last year. And I, I'd like to remind everybody, a year ago, we were in the beginning of 22, we were stuck with that second lockdown or second uh, slowdown because of Omicron. Omicron faded. Then came the summer of 22. This is going to be the big reopening after Omicron. All of the retailers were really ramping up for everybody's going to rush back to the store because everything's going to open. What do we put on the shelf? Same thing we put on the shelf in 2019. What happened to the retailers? They simultaneously had gluts and shortages at the same time. Because what did they learn? People's tastes, people's basket of goods that they buy, not only changed, but probably permanently changed. Why? Because normally, before the pandemic, I was home, you were home two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. Now I'm home four days a week. Saturday, Sunday, home two days, in the office three. That doubles the amount of time of home. I'm at home. Guess what that does? That's changed my lifestyle. 
that's changed your lifestyle, that's changed everybody's lifestyle. There is a friction, a stickiness. The economy needs to be restructured. It needs to be brought up to date for the post-pandemic economy. Now, what's the problem? The problem, I'm gonna lay the blame on a bunch of big banks in New York, because if there is an industry that does not believe in work from remote work, mm -hmm. hybrid work, it is big banks in Manhattan. They want everybody back in the office, you know, 11 hours a day, six days a week. That's what remote work is for them, uh, you know, like it was in 2019. And they think that that's the way that the rest of the country is going to go. And so, therefore, they're leading the charge to tell everybody, don't change anything. Just, just wait. It's all going to go back to the way it was. And the longer we take to understand this, the longer this friction, this out of balance economy. Now, it doesn't mean out of balance doesn't mean it's going to be slower or recession, but where there's this mismatch is going to manifest itself in higher prices. I've used the analogy, and others have used the analogy after World War II, that we we the big difference was in 1946 and 1947, everybody knew, everybody understood. The economy just changed. We're no longer going to be making P51s and Sherman tanks anymore. We have to restructure to a consumer economy. But in 2023, we're only some of us have said, you know what? Things have changed and we have to restructure the economy. But there's a significant voice saying, no, it hasn't. You just wait. Everybody's going back to the office. 2019 is just around the corner. And so it is showing up as sticky inflation. Core inflation if you look at the last six months of core inflation, and Jay Paul brought this up, it is averaging 5% over the last six months this year. That is completely unacceptable for the Fed. The Fed likes to say that the neutral rate of inflation is half a percent above the inflation rate. Well, then that means 550 is neutral if that's where the core inflation rate is. And he said that's what they follow, core inflation. Mm. That means that all these rate hikes, we haven't yet got to neutral yet. We have not been restrictive yet on this economy. We're just afraid that we've raised rates so much and it weakened the banks a few months ago that if we keep going, it might be worse. So we have to really get our head around this idea that the economy has changed, Inflation is a lot stickier than we think. And that the when the Fed does resume raising rates, and they're giving every indication they are, that they're going to keep going. And unless you tell me that the economy gets so bad that it brings down the inflation rate, that's not going to be enough to stop them. So that that's such an interesting and I and I love that you're willing to say things are different because I do think we're in, we're in this period where everyone's kind of trying to peer in and, and make a determination. I uh, want to ask you a question, but I just realized I forgot to remind everybody that Wednesdays are now extended daily briefings, as you know, we've been telling you. Um, and what a great day to have one on because I see your questions and we're going to get to them. If we go past the half hour, you need to be an RV member. So I'm giving you some time here to scan and jump on a trial so you can do that with us. Join our community. Um, so Jim, if if that is true and things are changed, I think this is a really, really important point and probably something the Fed is really trying to get their wrap their head around. Why is a structurally different a different economy, a work from home economy, more inflationary, at least right now? Why would that be? I mean, at the time we heard maybe, oh, people are gonna work from home. They don't have to commute, they can work anywhere, including low, low cost states. Maybe employers will pay them less. 
I mean, there was an argument, maybe it would be disinflationary. Why is it inflationary? Or are we not sure where it's going to settle? It's just inflationary now. I think it's a, it's a structural, what I mean by structural thing is that we go to work and we churn out product, whether it's a services product, a goods product, and we expect that the economy is going to consume the products that we churn out mm-hmm. at the rate it always has. It's not. We're simultaneously getting gluts and we're getting shortages, right? You know, a year ago, the shortage was in goods and the glut was in services. And now that is flipped. We've got a glut in goods and we've seemed to have a shortage in services, which is why we have such high services inflation. We're not in balance. Now, now not, not being in balance doesn't mean that we're going to have a recession or a depression or anything. We're out of balance. And really what it's doing is it is skewing prices more to the upside than the downside. Once we've restructured the economy, got it back in the balance, so we make stuff in proportion to the way that we consume it, then the inflation rate settles back down and goes back to something like it was pre-pandemic. But first, we have to restructure the economy. That's a lot of money and that's a lot of time. That is a, a big change in the economy that's coming. And we've also got you know this prospect of AI and technology coming down the pike as well, that could very well lead some of that restructuring in the economy. That will be, like I said, simultaneously, it will be both um, a structural problem and then eventually a benefit. So what I'm trying to say is, Mm. I think the inflation rate is going to stay higher for longer. Now, higher for longer is three or four, four and a half. It's not 10 or 12 or 15. And that the Fed is going to look at this and they're going to say, you know what? Five might be neutral, seven might be restrictive. And when the economy goes into recession, we're going to cut to four or three. There's no more zero left in this economy. There's no more 1% or zero when we have a recession on the funds rate or 1% when we have a recession on the funds rate. It's we're going to go back to four or three or maybe two and a half. And that we need to start to understand that that is the environment that we are in right now. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, move it back to equilibrium, which, by the way, some people would say a a return to more historically norms. And even that sounds low if you really look back. I I really appreciate the way that you explain that, Jim, because it almost sounds like a type of supply chain problem, but within our own economy, where you're seeing things that are, you, you know, creating these choke points that are contributing to this, which I think we can all understand. And I certainly can think about different parts of my life where I've seen that. Um, and then, and then other parts where you see things loosening up, but, but it's, it's think kind of hard to of it, get your head around because it, it doesn't seem right. to make sense. So think of it this way. There's been a shift in demand you and me and everybody else, we are buying things, we're still buying things in different proportions than we did in 2019 because there's been a fundamental change in our lifestyle. The supply chains, the economy needs to make more of some things, make less of other things. What we've learned is that the supply chains, especially, are so brittle, it is very difficult to change them. It is very difficult to go all the way through the supply chain and say, you know what, they want more of this and less of that. So quick, make a change, make less of this and make more of that. It's not so simple. 
it is, it is it is not so simple at all. You know, a great example of this was from six months ago or four months ago when we had all of the the the, the strife in, in China around the zero COVID and everybody was focusing on what happened with Apple and whether or not Apple would leave China um, and move their production of iPhones somewhere else. And the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of others did investigations of the supply chain to make an iPhone. And they really came to the conclusion that no one really understands it. It is so big, it is so vast, it is so complicated that if Apple just said, that's it, we're out of here, we're gonna make all the iPhones in India and we're not gonna rely on any more Chinese parts, it would take 15 years. And they would be constantly discovering some other thing they didn't anticipate that is made in China. The point is it's so brittle and so inflexible that it's really difficult to change but what the pandemic did was it made a change in our demand and in our tastes and in our desires. And for the economy to catch up to that is going to have a period of elevated inflation as prices are out of whack. Yeah. Peter and Christopher, I see your question. I just want to, you mentioned AI. So I just want to sort of underscore that because this idea that there are these massive changes coming at us, some of which are very hard to predict, is something we've been talking about for the last two weeks. You know, uh, those of you watching that we've been in the middle of a festival of learning AI edition. We wanted to zero in on this topic for this very reason. Alvin Fu was part of that series uh, this week talking about when Web3 and AI collide um, and really kind of expressed the concern that um, even if the economy remains strong, we are going to see layoffs in some areas, but not others, and trying to wrap our heads around that. Let's listen to a clip from that. I think the job that is that 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 won't disappear are jobs that requires human touches. Mm. Human touches, right? Something to do with uh, nursing as an example, right? Something that you need to provide care. Right. Right. right? Anything that needs, you know, creative in design, right? You know, maybe our hairstylist or whatever that maybe. I think these jobs, right, they are very resistant because you still need that human touch, right? But 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 again, as I said, these are well, these are repetitive in nature, but you still need that human touch. So any right. job that requires human touch, I think you're safe. <laughs> I, I think you are safe until they find, you know, they find robotic technology that can that can that can, you know, you can blend in with AGI, maybe. But even then I still think, you know. Nothing beats a human touch. That full interview from Alvin and what happens when Web3 and AI meet is available on our website. If you have not signed up for the Festival of Learning or you're not a Real Vision member, just scan the QR code uh, or click one of the links that Brian will put in the chats uh, and hop on over. Um, they've been amazing conversations uh, just today. Uh, we did actually did a session about um, AI and investing. Um, and there's one coming up tomorrow about how to use AI to scale your business. So uh, you're not want to you're not going to want to miss that. Um, also. Remember, in a couple of minutes, we're going we're gonna to switch over for members only as well. So come along with us. Um, so Jim, how are you thinking? I mean, we're, we're going to circle back and get in some questions about the restructuring that you just identified. Now layer on AI on top of that. How are you thinking about technology? I mean, is, labor, is the labor market going to track the business cycle or do we have this sort of wave of AI that will have a bigger impact on jobs? Oh, I think AI is going to have as big an impact on the economy as the creation of the internet itself. It's going to be epic. And of course, two things can be true at the same time. You can have an epic change in the economy because of an innovation wave or a technology wave. 
and you can overhype the tech stocks and you could wind up seeing, you know, them get way ahead of their skis. We saw that 99 and 2000, we overhyped online retailing, we overhyped the internet. And then throughout the 20, uh, you know, throughout the 2000s, all the way to 2010, 2011, post financial crisis, you didn't make any money in those stocks, but the internet online retailing fulfilled all of those promises. I think what people fail to recognize um, and Alvin's quote talking about the human touch is that when a new technology comes, we make the same mistake over and over again. Who's going to lose their job and how are companies going to how are companies going to use this to increase their profit margins? Really, you've got to say with AI is the following. Whose business model has now become irrelevant mm. and what there's going to be 20 or 30 million jobs in whole industries that do not exist today that might exist in 15 or 20 years. What industries are they going to be in and who's going to benefit from those industries and whose jobs are going to be displaced? Now, you're going to ask me who, where, how. I'll just give you the example. In 2007, when Steve Jobs held up the iPhone 1, I have the 13 now, but when he held up the iPhone 1, Raise your hand if you said that's the end of the taxi business within three years. No one had any idea that that meant that that was the end of the taxi business. But it, what it did was it didn't create a payment mechanism to make the margins of the taxi business be more, uh, more efficient. It completely rewrote their business model. I've actually argued this year that, the, that mobile banking apps have completely rewritten the business model of deposit taking for banks. It's mm -hmm. not just made it cheaper because now you don't have to go to the branch and they don't need to have as many branches or as many employees. Their business model has been completely rewritten. Business models are going to be rewritten up and down the line. Um, if you want one example, if you want me to give you one example, I think the biggest loser, loser in AI is going to be the law industry. I think my understanding of lawyers is about 80% of them do stuff that artificial intelligence can do. All we're really going to need is negotiators and litigators, which is maybe 20% of the lawyers out there. But the rest of them that do real estate closings and write contracts and stuff like that, that can be done by AI. That is one example of, of, of something that could be completely restructured. Now, does that mean that the law schools are going to have to close? No, I think what it means is they're going to have to completely change their curriculums and find something new in order to uh, make themselves relevant. Otherwise, they will have to close. So this restructuring AI is going to be, is going to be big. And the final thought I'd leave you with, um, I'm in Chicago and up in Northwestern, a friend of mine is Robert Gordon. He's a professor of economics and he's looked at the history of uh, techno technological innovations. And what you find is almost every technological in uh, innovation is a net creator of jobs, mm. not a reducer of jobs. That whether it was VisiCalc inventing the spreadsheet or the automatic teller or Uber, they all wind up creating more jobs than they destroy because they create whole new industries is what they wind up doing. You know, VisiCalc, got rid of the accounting clerk, but created the financial analyst as one example. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see, like I said, 20 to 30 million jobs are going to be created in the and in industries that do not exist. And some of those industries may not have been thought of yet, kind of like Uber from 2007 after the invention of the iPhone one. And that is going to then take entire businesses right now and it's going to tell them 
you know, um, Larry Frink was out today and he basically said, he's my one of my favorite whipping boys, you know, basically AI is going to make us more profitable. No, it's going to change the business model of BlackRock. And if you think all you're going to do with AI is buy a couple of uh, uh, NVIDIA disks and have it run your customer service to reduce your model, to reduce your profits, you're missing the point. It's going to take the business model of BlackRock and turn it on its head. Now, that doesn't mean that BlackRock can't evolve with that, but they have to start thinking that way. Most businesses are not thinking that way. Um, you know, so we've got a we've got a ways to go with this. And this could be very disruptive and or exciting at the same time. And I and I think both, but that is a hugely there's a that that whole that whole thought. I think is hugely important and is a really good way to think about this. And I like it because it's also kind of leaning into the opportunity, but we're all going to have to adapt and we're all going to have to embrace change. Otherwise we're going to be become obsolete and certainly the companies that we work for. And that's a, it's a really challenging time because change is not easy. Corporations don't always find change easy. So this is going to be, um, this is back to, by the way, if you've been listening to the festival, Peter Diamandis on the first day talked about exponential companies and you either are one or you will die like a dinosaur. I mean, this was exactly he's, his point that everyone has to be thinking some- this way. He's written some fantastic books. Bold and Abundance are two of his books. I could re- highly recommend them. He's a, I'm a big fan of his work. Yeah, and and Exponential Companies, uh, by the way, now lives online 2.0 um, with Salim Ismail, is online because they don't want to publish it because things are moving so fast. I mean, that's, I, you know, you've heard me say that for those who've been listening over the two weeks, but it's incredible. Okay, we've come to the half hour. We are not going to go. We are just going to start to answer the questions that are coming in fast and furious for Jim. Um, and we have a bunch of them. So if you are not a Real Vision member, even if you're a subscriber on YouTube, if you are not a, an RV member, um, hit the code, jump on a trial and join us because these are really important conversations. And this is an important part, a juncture in the market because it's very confusing, even, even to some professionals who disagree. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.